welcome to our verse-by-verse -verse journey through Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. The Gospel of Matthew serves as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In this Gospel, Matthew seeks to prove to the Jews that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. For those of us who aren't Jews, Matthew helps us to see our Savior King more clearly and through his gospel, learn to live well in his, in Christ's kingdom today. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the gospel of Matthew, and let's learn about our Savior King and his kingdom. Before we get started, uh, we had a men's breakfast yesterday, and uh, for those that were there, they know that the things that I said there would have absolutely guaranteed me to be canceled off of YouTube. So um, it was, uh, I came out pretty strong yesterday. But I, I just wanted to say, if you haven't a chance, if you get a chance, listen to it. Ladies too. Um, while it was obviously directed at the men, and it was a, it was a message about masculinity, um, you know, you ought to probably hear what, what we're saying to the church, what we say to the men of the church, as well as the topic that I was, I was teaching on is something we all need to hear, and we all need to understand. As we relate to God and we understand God, you know, as the Word reveals it to us, He tells that God is love, but there's some other characteristics that, that seem to, if you listen to them, they seem contradictory, but they're not. And so I'd encourage you, you go to it on Rumble. Um, you can see it there with the, the live uh, version of it. I'll have an edited version of it on, up on the website tomorrow afternoon. So just saying that, just so, again, be ready though, because I don't pull any punches on that one. All right? Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, as we continue our series through the gospel of Matthew, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. That's the way we like to teach here, and we're in the gospel of Matthew. I think according to my schedule, I'm going to be finishing it in September, so I have to decide what we do after that. Uh, okay, all right. I rebuke you in the name of Jesus Christ. Oh, and another thing as well, um, all the Bible studies this week are canceled. So just know that we've got a lot of stuff going on for, the, for Kelly's mom's memorial. So all the studies, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, will be canceled this week. Okay? If you're available, please, we'd love to have you Friday afternoon, 2 o'clock, right here. All right. Matthew chapter 18. We continue this series. Before we get into it, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come thanking you for your presence. We thank you, Lord God, that you love us so much as to give us your word so that we can know you, to know the God who loves us so much. He created us to be an object of his love. He created us to be a reflection of his glory. You created us to be messengers out into this world. You created us to, to be in fellowship with you and one another. And so I pray, Lord, as we get into this message, Lord, that's one of, the, one of the things you want to deal with here is how we do this thing we call church. What is the body of Christ and how should we function with one another? And so I lift up this time and I pray, Lord, that you'd minister to each of our hearts. Help us to lay down the junk of our lives 
and allow the peace of God to settle on our hearts as we take a few minutes and open our hearts to what the Spirit of God would say to his church. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that we know, because the Bible says it, is that Jesus came to save us. We know that. But to more than that, in John 10, 10, it also says that Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. That there's something about this life that is just not like the rest of the world might experience life. That there should be a sense of abundance, joy, peace, hope, lots of terms like that we use when we talk about, we talk about life in Christ. We don't always experience that. You know, sometimes... We find ourselves, and, and we're not experiencing the, what we sense is, is the good that God promises us. And we've got to ask our question, why? We're going to talk about one of those, one of the big ones, I think, that prevents us from experiencing all of the good that God has for us. Last time, we looked at the role that we as believers have for maintaining unity in the church. That's one of the things that, that, we, that we need to understand about the body of Christ. It is to be one in unity. That we have one God, one Savior, one reality of salvation, and there's not, it's not, we're not different. We're not separated from one another. We are one body, members of one body, and God calls us to a radical unity. And we looked last week, one of the things that that, that forces us to at least consider is being involved in the difficult work of reconciliation because we know, we know what happens. Things happen. Things happen. You know, people on that side are doing things to people on that side and, you know, people get all tangled up and confused and angry and frustrated and bitter and blah, blah, blah. And God says we ought to fix that. Church should never be divided. We should never have issues with other people in the church. And I'm going to say a little bit later on, I'll go ahead and say it now, but I'm going to say it again. Division in the body of Christ is sin. It doesn't exist. Doesn't, doesn't, shouldn't exist. And if it does, we need to fix it. We need to work hard to fix it. It's as we walk in unity together, whether it be the church or our marriage or our family or our community, whatever it might be, if we walk in unity in faith, in Jesus Christ, that's where the power of the Spirit of God comes in and does amazing and radical things. But when there's disunity, that's not going to happen. Can't happen. So we want to work toward unity. Unity is the goal. And today, we're going to look at the primary tool that we use to achieve that goal. We're going to open with a question from Peter in Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Well, Peter has just heard from Jesus that we ought to do the work of reconciliation. Brother sins against you. You need to, you know, you need to go to him and tell him his sin. 
hopefully he repents and you make it all right. If he doesn't, then you get others, you bring them, you talk about it and, and hope you get to reconciliation there. If that doesn't work, you bring it to the whole church. Reconciliation is the point, is the goal. Unity is the goal. And so Peter says, well, is there a limit to how hard we work? Is there a point where we stop the work of reconciliation, where we stop forgiving? Is there a point where we can say, okay, you've done too much. I'm done with you. <laughs> Understand where he says, my brother there, he's talking about my fellow believer in Christ. He's talking about believers and believers, Christians and Christians. How many times should I, believe, should I forgive a Christian who sins against me? Seven times? Here's the reality. Once someone is saved, they don't stop being a sinner. Can somebody say, yep, that one sitting next to me, I keep, never mind. <laughs> they're a sinner saved by grace, but they're still a sinner. Becoming a Christian doesn't make us sinless, but it should cause us to sin less, right? And because we're all sinners, there's a good chance we're going to sin against each other. It just happens. Sometimes inadvertently, sometimes, you know, not meaningful. You know, I, I, we're, I'm going to share one a little bit later on that I did with Kelly. I'm going to share one of my sins against my wife. Anybody excited about that? It's not, it's not a big deal, all right? This text is here. One of the things that we can use this text for is to help us to know what we do when we come to that, when we come to the reality that, okay, that two believers or however many, there's some sort of division, there's some sort of, you know, somebody has done something or perceived that somebody has done something, and what are we going to do about it? Because what's our goal? Unity. To get back to oneness. And by the end of this message... I'm hoping that you're going to see that this is not optional. Not optional. Too often, I've seen it way too many times. Somebody has a problem with somebody in the church. You know what they do? Boop. Out they go. They run. That's not right. That's not restoring unity. That's magnifying disunity. It's unhealthy. It's wrong. It's sin. As uncomfortable as it might make us, God would have us, if there's a problem between you and another believer, you know what he wants you to do? Fix it. And you know what? If we're standing on the word of God, the truth of the word of God, we're, in, we're enlivened by the spirit of God, and we're coming in love, you know what? There is nothing you can't fix. Nothing. Peter's suggestion of forgiving his brother seven times comes out of or builds upon the thought that some of the rabbis of his time said that you only have to forgive somebody three times. You know, when somebody sins against you three times, if they go a fourth time, you're done. You, don't, you just write them off, you move on. Now, this is based on some verses in Amos that showed that God would not forgive the wicked nation's 
because they had sinned four times. It's a stretch, and I don't, I don't see much credence in that as, you know, for the basis of doctrine. And that's a warning to us. You've got to be so careful by taking scriptures out of context and then building a doctrine around them and, and then creating a, this legalistic system that says, hey, you know, you know I, I can love you for three times, and after that third time, I'm, I'm done with you. I'm writing you off. You're, you're out of my life. That's not right. That's not God. Peter goes said, okay, not three times, but three times plus three times. Now, hey, I'll add another one on it. You know, do it seven times. As usual, Peter, though well-intentioned, he misses the mark. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Peter thinks, I'm being pretty magnanimous. I'll do seven times. Jesus says, uh, no, how about 490 times? Now, I, I want you to get in this whole section, this whole message, Jesus is going to use hyperbole. He is going to say things. He's going to exaggerate things to make a point. Hyperbole is exaggerated statements or claims not meant to be taken literally. So that's, we need to take that into consideration. Jesus is not literally saying, you need to get yourself a little spiral notebook, and every time your brother sins against you, you write it down, and you put a number next to it so that when you get to 490, if they hit 491, then you burn the book and you know, burn that bridge. It's not what he's saying. Remember, the previous section dealt with unrepentant sinners. If somebody comes and they will not repent step after step, they're just unrepentant. They're not going to repent. Okay, there's a process, God, and there's a process at one point where you have to separate yourself from that person, and it's right and healthy and good. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about here with sinners, who, you know, believers who have sinned against other believers, but repent. In Luke chapter 17, another another. Uh, rendering of this says this, take heed to yourselves. If your brother, your fellow believer, sins against you, rebuke him. That means go to him, tell him what he did, him or her. If he repents, forgive him or her. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the idea there is if he, if he comes and repents, now it doesn't say, you know, better check his heart and make sure he's being sincere in it. It doesn't say that. If he comes and says, please, I, I, I blew it, please forgive me. Bible says we're to forgive them. How many times? Every time. This is a hard, hard thing. When dealing with believers, keep this in mind. It's, it's the main thing. We've got to keep it in mind. God's goal is reconciliation. Reconciliation means I take the relationship back to where it was. When we have a disagreement, there's a sin that happens, the relationship is damaged, the relationship is broken, God's goal is to fix all that and bring it back to the way it was before. That's God's goal. And we're to work at it until it happens. Until we are back to where it was before, we're not done. 
until we can't hug and, and, and love and walk hand in hand and do whatever it is that we were doing before, until we get to that place, we're not done. We still have more work to do to reconcile. And, and, and it's hard, right? Can anybody acknowledge that it's hard to do that, especially with a knucklehead in your life? I'm speaking of myself with Kelly, poor thing. Listen, disunity in the body of Christ is sin. We try to make all this stuff soft and, and easy and, you know, and, and, not, and not confrontational to people, but we can't. People are, are living miserable lives because they're allowing sin to exist in their life or they're allowing disunity to exist in their life and they're miserable. Why would we allow that? Shouldn't we fix it? Especially if we can, we should try. Peter says, you know, I'm gonna, you know I'll forgive them seven times. I'm gonna keep track. I'll forgive them seven times. Let me ask you a question. Does God keep track of the sins you repent of? Nope. If you repent, Bible says that sin is, is as far as the east is from the west. It's gone. Never to be expressed or seen or described or counted ever again. God doesn't count or keep track of the sins that we repent of. They were taken to the cross. When we repent, we are, we are being washed by the blood of Christ. Those sins are being washed by the blood of Christ, and it washes them away. It erases them from all record in God's mind. If, if God doesn't keep track of them, should we? Nope. Listen, forgiveness is an expression of love. It's one of the greatest expressions of love. When we think of God, one of the ways that we know he loved us is he forgave us. For what? All of it. There's no sin in our lives that wasn't dealt with on the cross. And we repent, we receive Christ, we're washed clean of all of that. If we truly love, we will forgive and we'll keep on forgiving without keeping track of all of the times that person has blown it with us. Romans 13, 8. Oh, no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. When we forgive, we're canceling a debt. We'll talk about that a little bit, long, a little bit later. But we're, we're not to have any of those debts. The only debt we have is the debt of love. How much should we love? To, to the best, to the fullness of our capability. Jesus carries this thought of unlimited forgiveness into, the, into a parable in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servant. So again, this is a parable, so we don't, we're not to take it too literally. There's symbolism and there's hyperbole all through this parable. So we gotta be careful not to try to make it fit into some theology. Every detail is exaggerated. The very first thing we recognize, the symbol that we see here, and the symbol that we'll see as we continue on this study, the king in this parable is God. 
And so we, we understand the king, he, he's the one doing this. And he comes, comes to a time where he wants to settle accounts. The idea of settling accounts, meaning you know, he is going to call in all the people who owe him money, and he's going to ask them to repay the money they owe. From a spiritual standpoint, we need to understand how this relates to, to this parable. All sin, small sin, big sin, one sin, a million sins, they all incur a spiritual debt with God. And not just with God. If we sin against another person, we, we incur a debt with God and with that person. So that we spiritually, we owe them something. If I sin against Kelly, I am incurring a debt with God first and foremost. He's the main one. Every sin is against God. But I also have sinned against Kelly. And I, I incur a debt, a spiritual debt with her. That if I'm going to be right in God's eyes, I got to pay that debt. I got to make it right. I got to settle that account. All sin is a debt. Verse 24. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, all of us are so smart, we know exactly how much that refers to, right? 10,000 talents. He's using an amount, and again, he's using hyperbole. And this is, this is an unbelievable amount of money. Now, we don't know exactly what a talent of what. Typically, we would, we would equate it with a talent of silver, but it could be a talent of gold or something else. But we'll assume silver. If you assume it was a talent of silver, a, a talent, 70-ish pounds, was the equivalent of 6,000 days of labor. 6,000 days of labor. How long is that? A really long time. I think it was... 20 years or something like that. 10,000 of those equates to roughly, and again, when you start trying to take, you know, what was, you know, the, the money, value of money 2,000 years ago compared to today, but they estimate it could be around 10 billion with a B dollars. Imagine, imagine if you owed $10 billion, because that's really, for everybody in this room, that's what we're, we're to imagine ourselves. Because the next part, when we get down to the next part of it, we're going to see it relates more directly to a number that we can relate to. But this number is unpayable, impossible. None of, if, we, if somebody ever came to us and said, you owe $10 billion, <laughs> we would say, uh, yeah, here's a 20. You know, I'll, I'll give you 20 a week until, you know, we're caught up, which would be for never, for never. <laughs> In the picture here, we want to see the, the king is a, a symbol or symbolic of God the Father. The servant is us. We are the servant. The debt we owed God because of our sin, was an impossible amount. There is no way humanly possible that you would have ever paid your sin debt to God, ever. Not possible. Not in a thousand or thousands of thousands of lifetimes could you possibly do it. Verse 25. 
But as he was not able to pay, because it wasn't too big of a number, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Not sure how he was going to do that. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. Forgave him the debt. You know what that means? Bill says 10 billion, let me cross that out and write zero. From 10 billion to zero. This is a radical expression of God's amazing grace. If someone is a believer in Christ, there was a moment when we realized that the debt we owed God because of our sin was impossible. There was nothing we could do about it. And we fell on our face before him. And we begged him, God, please forgive me. And you know what he did? He forgave you. Every last bit. When we humble ourselves and ask forgiveness, he expresses this amazing grace. And he forgives us completely. No record is left of it. And we now are free. We go from owing more than we could ever pay, ever, ever, to owing nothing. We go from the darkness, the hopelessness of being in bondage to our sin forever to being free. John 8, 36, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. We're free to do what? To live, to live the abundant life that God created us for. And we have to understand something. There's a a radical picture in this. The king doesn't owe the money, but he takes the loss. It's a picture of the innocent paying the debt of the guilty. What does that sound like? That sounds like Jesus at the cross. Jesus, innocent of any crime, Not only did he die a sinless man, but he took on our sin upon him on the cross. All of it. Took our guilt, paying the debt for the guilty. He was the innocent one. It's hard to imagine. Try to imagine being that servant. You owe $10 billion, a a number that, you know, you can say you're going to pay it back. You're you're not. You can't. There's no way. Humanly possible you can. The number's just too large, and that was meant to mean that. Imagine what it would be like to be free of that. You go from the hopelessness of never getting out from underneath it to no longer having to even concern yourself with it. Now, if you have been forgiven of your sins, you might actually remember that moment when you realized, I'm free. All of my sins have been forgiven. The image there is we were that servant that owed that impossible amount. We are also, because of faith in Jesus Christ, that we are the forgiven servant. We have that freedom. Now, if the parable stopped there, that would be pretty good, but it goes on. It asks, asks the question, it brings the question up. As, as forgiven 
people, as forgiven believers, how should we act toward other believers? If we have experienced the infinite, amazing, unbelievable grace of God, if we have experienced God's mercy, how gracious and merciful should we be to God's people? We're going to look at this man's response, and then we're going to see how the king responds to him in verse 28. But, that's the bad sign, bad sign, but that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him, took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. Remember, this is hyperbole, so this is just, a, this is just an illustration of spiritual truths. The details are exaggerated. It's hard to imagine somebody doing what this wicked man does, but the point is he goes and he responds in a way that's contrary to what he experienced, a hundred denarii, just as a comparison, was the equivalent of about five months' wages. About five months. So take whatever you make in five months, if you make anything, and, you know, and, you know calculate that out. Relative to, relative to 10 billion, how much is it? <laughs> Not very much. His fellow servant, the forgiven servant, comes. And this guy, other servant, he owes, him, he owes him. It's a real amount of money. It's a significant amount of money. The, the forgiven servant grabs him by the throat and then throws him into prison. And the fellow servant did exactly what the forgiven servant did. He fell down and begged him to forgive him. I'll pay it back. I'll pay it back. Just have patience with me. But instead of showing mercy, he doesn't. This is an immensely wicked act. And, and, and we're about to get into the more difficult part of the message. He had received, this forgiven servant had received an unbelievable amount of grace and mercy. But when given an opportunity to extend that grace and mercy to others, he didn't. This is the exact opposite of how we ought to respond, right? Would we acknowledge that? Do we see that? That's why it's done in hyperbole like this, so we can see the, the extension of it. Typically, the amounts that we're talking about, the things we're talking about are much smaller, much closer together, but it doesn't change it. Luke 6.36 says this, Therefore, be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. I want you to catch this. What is it saying here? How merciful should we be? as merciful as God is. As merciful as God has been to you. Is that possible? Yes. You know why? Because you're told to do it. We're to do it to the limit of, of human possibility, but we're to take it all the way out there. We should be merciful. Well, this wicked act did not go over well with the other servants. Verse 31, 
So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, what had been done, they were very grieved or saddened and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? As forgiven people, we should forgive. We should forgive to the degree that we have been forgiven. How much? We've been forgiven everything. So what should we forgive? Everything. Everything. Now, our culture doesn't think like this. Matter of fact, there are people in the church that don't think like this. But that's what the Bible says. We're to forgive to the degree that we have been forgiven. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you again. How much should we forgive? As much as God forgave us. When we forgive others, as much as God has forgiven us, then we can stop. What does that mean? You'll never stop. You're, you're never going to run out of chances to forgive people. Well, it goes on a little bit darker than that because this wicked, unforgiving servant experiences the consequences of his action. Verse 34, and his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Again, we're talking about believers forgiving believers. There's a point where other, other believers are going to sin against you. I guarantee it. It's just what happens when people live and act around one another. They're going to do or say something that is just, it's offensive. Someone who understands God's gracious forgiveness and refuses to forgive others is worse than an unbeliever. What do you mean? An unbeliever doesn't understand God's grace, doesn't understand God's forgiveness. If for them not to forgive, okay, well, you don't expect them to because, well, you might want them to, but you can't expect them to because they don't understand it. But if you got somebody who knows it, has received the forgiveness of God, experienced God's grace, knows what it means, and then refuses to do it to others, that's wicked. And it also calls into question, are they even saved? Can a forgiven person refuse to forgive others? Forgiven people forgive. And to not do so, according to this, says there's an angry response from the Father. Now, again, we're talking about hyperbole. We understand there's still this response from God. When, when we have experienced the fullness of God's grace and understand his forgiveness, we've been cleansed, we've been washed clean by the, the precious blood of Christ, and then we won't forgive others? That can only be responded by God with anger. And he says here, he'll deliver him to the torturers. Anybody want to volunteer for that? You don't, you don't want to, but some people are. He said, and he's going to be there until should pay all that was due to him. What was due to him? 
compassion, pity, mercy. Until that person has compassion and pity and mercy, he's going to experience the torture. We all need to hear this. Jesus is talking to believers, brothers and sisters. What I'm about to say is hard. It's strong. (laughs) Even stronger than what I've already said. And we may not want to hear it. The secret to a miserable, tortured life is unforgiveness. The secret to a miserable, tortured life is unforgiveness. You want to be miserable and tortured? Just don't forgive people. That's what he's telling us here. If you've experienced the grace of God, the mercy of God, and you don't forgive others, God is not going to allow you to experience the good that he's promised you because you are, you are, you are despising his goodness, his grace, his mercy. He's not going to just let that go. Forgiveness is, is the main thing that allows us to interact with God and to despise that cannot react, cannot result in anything other than some consequence from God. When someone sins against us, they bring into our lives, as an illustration, some building materials. And then they just bring junk into our lives. Forgiveness sends all of that stuff away. Unforgiveness takes all of that junk and builds a prison. Unforgiveness then, if we persist in it, that prison is inside of us and we are the only prisoner. Unforgiveness locks that door. And we are imprisoned, not them, I am. The prison guard is our rebellion against God for refusing to forgive. Not them, I refuse to forgive. And so I lock myself into a prison where I experience the misery and torture of unforgiveness. If we refuse to forgive, we are choosing to be tortured and to be miserable in this self-made prison. Jesus says that, that he must forgive from his heart, that this is a heart issue. If I'm not doing it, there's something wrong in my heart. If I know the forgiveness of God, if I experience the grace and the mercy of God, and yet I won't forgive my brother, my sister. <laughs> then there's something wrong inside of me. The only way to be free, the only way to unlock that prison, the only way to tear down that prison is to forgive. Nothing else works. Let me give you an illustration of what forgiveness looks like. Kelly and I have been married for over 40 years, right? That's given her a lot of practice forgiving me. She's an expert at it. We both have. We both had practice. 
recently, I said something, something I shouldn't have. It was very insensitive, and, and, and to the life of me, I was going to try to think of what actually what it was. It wasn't that long ago, like with, within a couple of weeks ago, and um, it was insensitive, and it didn't take me very long, it, really not very long at all, to realize that I had offended her. We talked about it. I apologized slash repented. I repented of it. I was wrong. What I said was wrong, and I admitted it, and I confessed it, and I repented of it. And then I did something very important. I asked her to forgive me. Why did I do that? Did I do that for me? No. You know why I didn't do it for me? I was already forgiven. When I repented, according to God, if I confess my sins, what does he do? He forgives me. He cleanses me from all unrighteousness. I was free. I was ready. I can now go back and start and go back to our relationship the way that it was without any hindrance to that relationship, not a bit, because I was free. I had repented. But I wanted her to be free too. And I knew that my repentance didn't free her. It freed me, but it didn't free her. By forgiving me, she prevented the prison of unforgiveness from being built. When she forgives me, it washes away, it drives away all of that junk that can be used to create that prison of misery and torture. Listen, there are too many Christians living in self-built prisons of torture and misery because they won't forgive. They're holding on to something. Something has been done to them, and it's a real thing. I'm not, I'm not saying it wasn't a real thing. Something has been done to them, and they're holding on to it. And they've locked to that door, and they're going to be miserable and tortured for the rest of their lives, and I'll show you. I'll just live in misery and torture for the rest of my life. Well, that other person may not have any idea. Too many believers... Are, are living these miserable lives because they will not forgive. Now, I know, I know, I know, you, I know many of you. I know the things that happen in your life. I know I've heard some of the histories and the stories. They're way bigger than my insensitive comment to Kelly. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how bad it was. It doesn't matter how big it was. It doesn't matter how many times it happened. God's grace is bigger than all of that. If God forgave you, he can, he's forgiven them, especially if they've repented of that. They're forgiven. And the only person that's suffering is you. You might be making them suffer because of your suffering too, but, <laughs> but you're the one in prison. And we don't think about it that way. We think it's their fault. I don't mean to be pointing over here. It's their fault. It's your fault because you did it to me. But I'm choosing to be in prison with all if I will just forgive them. It gets washed away. 
I know people that have experienced horrible things done to them. God can forgive it. God can forgive the person that did it. Because when Jesus died on the cross, there was no limit to his forgiveness. It covered everything, absolutely everything. And when I forgive somebody, I'm not saying it's okay what they did. When Kelly forgave me, she's not, I'm not, I don't even acknowledge the fact. What I did was wrong. It doesn't change that. It just means, you know what? She doesn't have to hold on to it anymore. It doesn't have to be something in between our relationship anymore. Doesn't matter what's been done to you. Doesn't matter how many times it's happened to you. Doesn't matter if the other person repented. None of those things matter. The question is, do you want to be free? If you want to be free, forgive. Forgiveness is for you, not for them. When I forgive someone, it's not so that I, they, they're released from their consequences or their guilt or any of those things. That's between them and God. When I forgive somebody, it's so that I can be free, so that I am not in the prison of unforgiveness. Listen, unforgiveness, according to this text, is sin. And we choose not to forgive what are we doing? We're sinning. But it's a, it's a very wicked kind of a sin because it's being done by people who say they're living under the blessing and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God, and yet they won't practice the one thing that God did for them so that they could have hope and peace and joy. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. How many? All of them. There's not one held back, not one that God hasn't dealt with. He forgave your billions of spiritual debt. All of it. Now, you are not living in the darkness of that debt. You're not living in the hopelessness of that debt. You are free. And you, you, can, you can cast your spiritual eyes to heaven and say, that's my home. That's where I'm going. God expects you. If that's true for you, he expects you to reach out and say, okay, JJ, I forgive you. He hasn't done anything to me, so he's all good. He's a blessing to me. But he expects me because there's nothing that JJ could do, Nothing that he could do that even remotely compares to what I've done to God. Nothing. He could do the most heinous, horrible thing, and it still wouldn't even come close. There is no way that he could incur a debt with me that even remotely approaches my debt with God. And if God has forgiven me for all of that, then I can forgive him for that relatively small amount. And if you do that, if you forgive, whether it's big or small, a lot or a little, you are the one who's set free. It's your choice. Live in a self-made prison of tortured misery or live in the freedom of the abundant life in Christ. Seems simple. It's not. 
some of these things that we need to forgive our heart. We're forgiven children of God. And as forgiven children of God, we need to forgive because that's where our freedom comes from. That's where our freedom to live the abundant life that Christ gave us. Because if you don't forgive, forget about it. You're not living that life. You're not going to experience the good. Even if good comes to you, you're not going to appreciate it. You're not going to enjoy it. You're going to be miserable. And that's God doing that. He's not going to live you as an unforgiving servant. He's not going to let you live that way. He's going to make you realize just how miserable you are. And he'll let you be miserable and miserable. I'm, I've witnessed it far too many times. And it makes me sad because it's so simple. Just forgive. Just forgive. Now, understand, I've said all that in about 45 minutes. It doesn't answer all the issues of sin that we do against one another, all the issues, all the questions about forgiveness. But I want you to need to understand, we cannot allow unforgiveness to exist in our heart. It is poison. It is toxic. It is killing us. And it's not the other person's fault. Even though they, they gave you the materials for it, you built the prison by not forgiving. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. I'd like you to take a, just a, a moment. I think, I think we all probably could look into our hearts and maybe see a prison or two. Maybe something that goes way back in our lives and we can go back just, we can go back to our childhood maybe and find things that, that people have done to us that still hold us. Things that, that, that have harmed us. Things that have, that have created these little prisons and some of them are not little but every last one of them can be destroyed every last one of those prisons can be torn down just by forgiving so take a moment and we're just gonna we're gonna be still and allow the spirit of god to speak to us if we have any of those then take a moment and ask god to help you to forgive and then ask him to do it again and again and again until that thing is gone. God wants to set us free. Now, he, he did the big part by forgiving us of our sins. Now we have to do the hard part of forgiving others. Let's take a moment and just, and just reflect upon that, and then I will pray, and then the worship team will lead us in a song. Just take a moment. Heavenly Father, we do come, and Lord, this is a heavy topic today, and, and Lord, it's so important to us because I believe there are so many, more than we like to believe that there are, of people who are, who are living in these prisons of unforgiveness, and they're miserable and tortured because of it, and they're not experiencing the grace and the mercy and the hope and the peace and the joy that you desire for them. And you've given us the key to unlock that prison and to be free. And that key is to forgive. And so I pray, Lord, you'd help us to get outside of ourselves and to simply believe that this is the truth, 
as, as laid out for us in your word. You don't, you don't ask us to forgive. You don't suggest that we forgive. It is a command of God to forgive and to forgive as much as we have been forgiven. So I pray for your people that you would help them to do that very thing right now, that they would recognize that this is the key to freedom is to forgive, especially those things that, that are really holding us back and holding us down. I thank you, Lord God, for a church. I believe this church loves you, God, and we, and we do our best to love each other, but we don't do that perfectly. And because we aren't perfect, we make mistakes with one another. And so I pray if there's any issues going on with people um, in the church, in this church, I pray, Lord God, you'd help them to, to get to that place where they will reconcile to complete and total freedom, to, to resume a relationship maybe even better than it ever was before. And Lord, I lift up our families and our marriages the same thing. Lord, there are things that we allow in our hearts and minds, sins and hurts and wounds and offenses, these things that come, and, and they come because, because we're not perfect. We make mistakes. Sometimes we make bad choices. Sometimes, sometimes we're just dumb. And yet, Lord God, we can be freed from those. We can be forgiven of those things. And so I pray that you'd help your people to do that. And Lord, if there's anyone here who has not done that work of reconciliation with you. It begins by us receiving what you did on the cross, Jesus, for each and every one of us. When you died, you made a way for us to be reconciled back to God. And we would simply believe that when you died on the cross, you died for me, you died for them. If we will believe that, and then confess our sins, believe, repent of those sins, turn away from them, the Bible says very clearly that we are forgiven. Our billions of debt is wiped away. In one moment. Unbelievable, radical, amazing. And though, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who has never done that, they would do it right this very moment. They'd say in their heart, Lord Jesus, I know that I am far from you. I have sinned against you. Please forgive me. Wash away my sin. I know that you died on the cross for me, and I receive you now as my Lord and Savior. And Lord, let all of us be forgiving people. We are forgiven people. Let us be forgiving people. That our first response to an offense is to seek to forgive and to seek to reconcile. We can only do this because of you. We can only do this by you. And we can only do this based on what your word tells us. And so we thank you, Lord, for all of those things. And I pray that you'd minister to your church now. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we learn more about our Savior King and His Kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew. It is our hope that these messages will help you grow in your faith. If you have any questions or there is anything we can do to help you with that, please do not hesitate to connect with us. Go to calvaryfv.com connect to find all the ways that you can connect with us. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. One of the ways we would like to engage with you is in the area of prayer. Please let us know how we can be praying for you. Send us an email to prayer at calvaryfv.com or text the word pray to 
419-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to help others find hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com give or text the word give to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus.